0: West Houston Bible Church, uh, as you know, Robbie's out of town at the APAC meeting and, uh, he'll have class here on Thursday night. I, I don't believe that's mentioned in the bulletin, but we will have class on Thursday night. Robbie will be back then. Uh, we're up to our sixth, uh, lesson in Titus tonight. And, uh, I might add, uh, for those of you that are watching and, uh, Sunday, we may have a special guest speaker. Uh, a congressman that Robbie met while at the conference is will be in town and he wants to come and and see us. so we're looking forward to that. So any of those of you out here that are normally here on Sunday will get a special treat. Uh, we can start now with uh, Titus on the sixth lesson. Thank you. What's that? Jude I'm sorry, Jude. Jude, the sixth lesson.
1: We'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, make sure everybody has the opportunity to uh, be in fellowship, take the time to uh, use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have the freedom in this nation to come together to study your word. We continue to pray for the leaders in this nation, from local leaders up to national leaders. We pray that you might uh, restrain the efforts of those who seek to destroy the freedom in this nation and that you might give uh, power and influence to those who understand the importance of freedom and that we might truly see a change in this nation, that there might be a turning back at the very least to establishment principles, to the Constitution. And at the greatest, we would hope that there would be a genuine turning to Christ and to the scriptures as the only source of hope. Father, we pray for those who serve. In the military, those who go in harm's way, we pray that you would watch over them. We pray for those in this congregation who are serving in the military, and we pray that you would uh, give them opportunities to faithfully uh, communicate your grace and your love and your and the gospel of Jesus Christ to those with whom they serve, and that you would protect them on uh, the battlefield and in training, and that they might... Uh, uh, serve their country with distinction and honor and father we pray for us as we study your word that we might be uh, challenged to recognize that we have been called to the highest calling of all that is to represent you as ambassadors for jesus christ and to uh, communicate the gospel of jesus christ and to represent you before and be a testimony for you before the angels and before the human race And we pray that you would help us to understand what we study in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're continuing our study in Jude. We are still in the first verse of Jude, and I've corrected the slides from the last time, indicating the first part of the salutation, indicating the author, and the second part uh, indicating the, the, the recipients. They are identified as those who are called, Uh, sanctified, I'm going with the reading of the majority text in the Greek rather than the critical text which reads beloved. I think there's better internal evidence supporting the reading sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. That's the focus of, of our topical study now is what does it mean to be preserved or kept by Jesus Christ, the perfect passive participle indicating completed action, uh, that this happened in the past and is preserved on into the future, focusing on present results of a past action. Uh, Jude comes back to indicate this at the end of the epistle in his closing benediction, now to him who is able to keep you, from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, indicating that all of the warnings, all of that which uh, Jude develops between verse 3 and verse 24 are are related to uh, this fact that we are kept by God. So that whatever happens, whether we stumble or not, we do not lose our salvation. So we began to look at the doctrine of eternal security, recognizing that there are many Christians who challenge this doctrine. For example, the Russian Baptists, a uh, Russian Baptist denomination. In fact, most Russian Christian denominations outside of Russian Orthodoxy do not believe in eternal security. They believe there is something you can do to lose your salvation. I remember one time I was preaching at the that, uh, Christmas church, uh, which is where Igor Smolyar uh, serves there in Jotomer uh, in Ukraine, and I was uh, I prayed I, I knew this was a conflict or con- problem in the uh, in the um, uh, uh, congregation and when I closed in prayer, I stated that simply that christ that God was able to keep us and preserve us from losing our salvation. And when I went to my seat, uh, I heard some lady mumble behind me, you know, there's another one of those people who believe you can't lose your salvation. I mean, she said that in English, obviously in a whisper, but loud enough for me to hear it. So that is a definite uh, problem and issue there. I defined eternal security as the work of God. It's not our work, it is God's work. Toward the believer, at the instant of faith alone, in Christ alone, which guarantees we're locked in at that instant so that we cannot lose that salvation. Uh, It guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. God is the one who saves us. He is the one who keeps us. I identified the problem in two areas, in lordship, salvation, eternal security versus perseverance. Eternal security means God keeps us saved. Perseverance means that uh, something completely different, the perseverance of the saints. It is the saints who persevere in keeping themselves saved in lordship uh, terminology. As I pointed out, there are other Calvinists who believe that perseverance is really the perseverance of Christ and that would be close to what we believe in terms of eternal security. And in the Arminian position, uh, there's no eternal security, which means you can't ever know that you're saved. I broke things down in terms of the persons of the Trinity. Third point related to the purpose of God, Romans 8, 29, and 30. Fourth point was related to the power of God, the uh, failure of people to understand the extent and the to- total corruption that it, and the total guilt of every human being because of sin. James 2.10, one who is guilty in stumbling in one minor point in the law, James says, is guilty of all. Uh, James 1.24 says that it is God who is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of his glory. Uh, John 10.29, uh, it is the Father who uh is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them, that is believers, out of the Father's hand. Also, first Peter one, four and five were protected by the power of God. Second Timothy one twelve. He is able to guard philosopher, same word used in Jude verse twenty four. He's able to guard or protect or keep what we have entrusted to him, that is our eternal life. Then we look at the love of God. Romans 5:8 God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. it is God lo- God's love that provided a perfect salvation. It is God's love that uh, keeps us. Paul says in Romans 8:39 "Nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we looked at point six, the promise of the Son that he is the one who gives eternal life. He doesn't take it back. No one shall snatch us out of his hand. Then I looked at the prayer of the son in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 11 through 15. And again, I pointed out that in these verses, you have this phrase, keep them. He prays to the father in the middle of verse 11, holy father, keep them. In thy name, that, and in verse 12, while I was with them, Jesus prayed, I was keeping them in thy name. That's all of these uses of keep are translations of the Greek word tereo, which is the word we have there in Jude 1, being kept by the Son. Uh, verse uh, uh, 15, Jesus prayed, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them, guard them, From the evil one, we cannot lose our salvation. Then I had Hebrews 7.25 mislocated earlier, and I revised the points. Point 8, which we did not get to yet, refers to the power of Jesus Christ to save us. Hebrews 7.25, the writer of Hebrews states, Hence also he, that is Jesus, is able... To save forever, and there is the word sozo, the common word for spiritual salvation. It can mean deliverance, physical deliverance, or healing, physical healing. But here and in other places, it refers to the totality of our salvation, wrapping up phase one, phase two, phase three, all in one uh, bundle. So hence, also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, that is the only way to draw near to God is through Jesus Christ. And he is able to save us forever because he always lives to make intercession for us, as seen in his high priestly prayer of John 17. Now, the ninth point is to understand this, this dynamic of the body of Christ. It's more than a metaphor that we are a body. It refers to the total total membership of every believer in Jesus Christ who has lived since the day of Pentecost to the rapture of the church. Every believer is incorporated into this organic unity identified as the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of the body. And that Greek word translated head has to do with authority uh, and it has to do with control and his oversight over all the members of the body and as his role as the authority and head of the body uh, he is not going to uh, sever a member once they are joined to the body he is not going to cut off a hand or cut off a leg uh, once joined to the body so the imagery that we have here is an imagery of of once joined, there's never mentioned this threat of somehow there is going to be um a removal of that uh of that part or member of the body. First Corinthians twelve thirteen says, For by one Spirit we were all uh joined we were all baptized into one body whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink into uh, one spirit. And verse 21 says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. See, this would bear on this issue of having a member removed from the body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. There is nothing removed that is an organic whole and so the imagery of the body of Christ as a whole uh, argues against the loss of salvation. And the tenth point, I want to focus on the work of the Savior, the work of the Savior, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is because of Jesus work on the cross that the sin problem is saved. And as we've studied in Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, at the cross, this, this debt of sin is nailed to the cross at that time when Jesus was crucified so that in that imagery, the debt is paid in full historically at the cross for all mankind. It is completely paid for. This means that there is no one, no angel, no human who can bring a charge or bring a condemnation against those who are saved because that list of charges, that list of indebtedness to the justice of God is complete because it is the omniscience of God that made the list. He didn't forget a sin. He didn't drop something. You're not going to commit a sin tomorrow that God in his omniscience did not know about billions of years ago. He, God's not going to go, oh, man, I forgot that one. It's not going to happen. Every single sin is identified and itemized in that List that was nailed to the cross. Therefore, there's no charge, there's no condemnation that got dropped, that slipped away, and so no one can bring a charge that hasn't been paid for. Also, we have to remember that since Christ's death paid for all sin, and because we now possess the righteousness of Christ that's imputed on the basis of faith alone, Nothing can be charged to us. It is, it, it, we, it's not on the basis of anything that we've done or haven't done that we have that righteousness. It, it is like a garment that covers us. It, it's like a force field that surrounds us. And, and it's not, we're not the one generating the force field. That force field, that blanket that surrounds us is the righteousness of Christ not our righteousness. So since it is the Christ's righteousness that's the basis for salvation and Christ's righteousness that's the basis for our being declared to be just, there's nothing that we can do to be declared unjust because it's not based on our righteousness at all. Therefore, if anyone claims that a sin can undo our salvation they're really making various blasphemous statements against God. They're claiming, maybe not directly, but they're claiming that, ah, you've committed a sin that Jesus didn't pay for. You've committed a sin that God forgot about. Or they're saying that Jesus' payment wasn't enough. If it wasn't enough, then you had to add something to it by your works, So all of those are blasphemous statements that that um, impugn the justice of God, impugn the omniscience of God, and impugn the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. This is why the Apostle Paul is able to say in verse in Romans eight thirty three and thirty four, "Who will bring a charge?" against God's elect. And the way the question is phrased assumes the answer, no one. No one is able to bring a charge against God's elect. God is the one who justifies. See, that's the point. It's not, we're not justified by anything we've done. God justifies us by what Christ did. Uh, Paul goes on to say in verse thirty-four, "Who is the one who condemns? Who can? Who who attempts to bring a condemnation? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. It's a he refers to resurrection here because the resurrection doesn't save us." But because justification or the basis for justification, the payment is completed at the cross, God validates Jesus' work at the cross and raises us and and raised Christ from the dead so that he is seated a position of passivity at the right hand of God the Father because nothing else needs to be done to save or to keep the individual. And he is the one who who intercedes for us. Notice this is another reference to the fact that it is Christ's prayer for us that is part of the dynamic of how we our salvation is kept. In other words what we see here is that God is greater than any of us, God is greater and his grace is greater than any of our sins any of our thoughts, any of our works. There's nothing we can do that is that can destroy the grace of God. There's nothing that we can do to destroy what Christ has done for us. There's nothing we can do to reverse the payment for our sin. There's nothing that we can do to cancel or eliminate the grace of God. Uh, Eternal security is a... Uh, a fact that is designed to give us a firm foundation on which to live, knowing that we even if we sin or fail that we don 't lose our salvation there 's not a threat there related to the loss of salvation it 's not a license to sin, but it gives us a foundation to move forward without fear of failure. another um, Another argument for for salvation comes from the character of God. These are, I'm going to give you two or three theological arguments to think through. Uh, these aren't directly related to Scripture. I've alluded to some of these already, but I want to express these in terms of basic logic. And the first one has to do, this. this first has to do with the character of God and His omniscience and His omnipotence. First of all, God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows everything that could happen, everything that would happen, everything that will happen. Billions and billions of eons ago, God's knowledge was the same. God's knowledge does not increase, and God's knowledge does not decrease. God has always forever and ever known all that there is to know, and he has known it immediately so there is nothing that he has forgotten. He knew every human being that would exist. He knew every human be- what every human being would do. He knew what they might do. Jesus said if uh, Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what the miracles that had been performed by him, then they would have repented. This indicates that he knows what could have happened under different conditions. God is omniscient. He knows everything. So that means that he knows every thought we've ever had, every thought we will ever have, everything we've ever said or would say, could say. He knew everything we would ever do. He knows our motives. He knows our desires. He knows our wishes. We cannot surprise God. We can't shock God. We can't do anything that uh, indicates that that somehow God missed Something. So even though we commit some sin that shocks us, some sin that surprises us, it doesn't shock or surprise God and God says, well, that's right, that I, I was paid for by Christ on the cross. That was on the list of the, of the debt that was nailed to the cross. When we combine God's omniscience with his omnipotence, which means God is all-powerful, he is able to accomplish what he sets out to accomplish, we know that he is able then to do everything necessary to bring us to salvation, that there is nothing that we can do greater than his omnipotence. There is nothing we can do that's outside of his omniscience. There's nothing that we can do that is so great that he will not cover it by grace. So to say or to think that we can do something that jeopardizes our salvation is just the height of human arrogance and blasphemy towards the character of God. Now the 11th point, the 10th point, had to do with the character of God, his omniscience and omnipotence. The eleventh point is that to think that we can help God in keeping us saved is also arrogance. And this is a reversal of the plan of salvation. It's the idea that somehow we do something to make ourselves savable. Scripture says that God saves us and we do not save ourselves. Man's failure doesn't cancel out the integrity, the power, or the omniscience of God. When we fail, it doesn't negate God's holiness or His righteousness. It doesn't change the righteousness of Christ that's been credited to our account. The problem is that in our arrogance, sometimes we're so concerned that somebody got away with sin, that somebody did something that is so great that that somehow that got covered. There, we think that there are some sins that are so great that they that they really do deserve death eternal condemnation, uh, and they're just different from other sins. But remember what James said in James 2.10, that if we're guilty of a l- small infraction of the law, that we're guilty of all. So whether somebody's a mass murderer, a geno-ci- genocidal maniac, or whether they're just somebody who tells little white lies to raise money for good causes, they are both guilty before the law of the whole law, and they are equally corrupt, And equally, equally condemned. So we can't think in any way that somehow we help, either help God in saving us or keeping us saved. Now the twelfth point is one that is a little more sophisticated, a little more complex to think through. And it really has to do with an understanding of what transpired in our salvation. Understanding the dynamics and complexities of what happens when God saves us. So the twelfth point is that when we understand the dynamics, the complexities, the sophistication, the changes that take place when God saves us, we recognize that that's an irreversible act. First of all, we have imputation the imputation of righteousness, that when we trust in Christ, God credits to us the righteousness of Christ. To lose salvation would mean God would have to say that we've committed some act so great that it negated our faith and that Christ's righteousness has to be removed. Now, let's just think about that a minute because the classic example in Scripture of the imputation of faith is Abraham, and G- Abraham received an impu- the imputation of faith and the declaration of righteousness before he was ever called by God in Genesis 12:1, when he was still back in Ur of the Chaldees. So we're told in Genesis 15:6, which is really a passage we've studied before, that that is sort of a summary reminder. Uh, it's not saying that because Abraham believed the promise of God outlined in in fifteen one through five that he was declared righteous, but uh, the the verb tense shift there indicates that now remember Abraham had already believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. We're being reminded that Abraham is a believer and has already been declared righteous. So we think of Abraham's sins. And Abraham committed many different sins in terms of disobeying God, uh, in terms of his uh, failure to trust in God's promise. But he never loses his salvation. There's never the threat of his loss of, of of the imputation of righteousness. So that because we are not saved by anything that we've done, we're saved because we have this righteousness of Christ. In order to uh, in order to change that. We would have to, uh, in order to change that, we would have to, uh, we would have to lose that imputation. That would have to be removed from us. Then justification, which is of course related to imputation, because we're we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, God declares us just. So that would have to be reversed. We would have to have God declare us to be unjust, and remove that imputation of righteousness. And since that perfect righteousness is never removed, God does not reverse his declaration. There is no appeal trial to the Supreme Court of Heaven that now this person is no longer justified and has to be declared unjust. Justification is eternal because it is based on God's integrity his righteousness and it is his righteousness that is given to us remember the scripture says he who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of god might be found in us and then we have romans 5 1 through 3 which states therefore because we have been declared righteous by means of faith We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, not through our works, not through what we've done, but through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our access by means of faith into this grace in which we stand. So what we have is a relationship with God that is not dependent upon our integrity, our morality, our virtue, or our failures, but it depends exclusively on his righteousness, his holiness, his justice, his integrity. The very concept of eternal security is the fact that God's integrity is what's at stake, not our integrity. So to claim that we can lose our salvation is to impugn and blaspheme the very integrity of God, saying that that he really doesn't declare us just or righteous. He really hasn't imputed righteousness to us. We have peace with God because he gave us his righteousness. We do not have peace with God because of any righteousness that we have done. So because it's not based on anything that we have done, any works on our behalf, we can't lose it. We stand in grace. We stand in grace. It is a position that never changes, not because of our morality or what we've done, but because of the possession of Christ's righteousness and our declaration of justification from God. So we stand in grace, not in works. Like Ephesians 2 says, we have been saved by grace through faith and not of works. Because we stand in grace, it's not works. Because it's not based on works or merit, then there is nothing we can do to lose that. And then we have another aspect of salvation, regeneration. Regeneration means to be born again. Uh, That which was spiritually dead, separated from God, did not have a human spirit, that immaterial component of our nature that allows us to have an eternal relationship with God that was non-functional. It did, it was either not there or it didn't function. And therefore, at salvation, there has to be a new birth. God the Father imparts to us a human spirit. To lose salvation means that we would have to be declared spiritually dead. We would have to have that human spirit taken from us we would have to become unregenerate again. And then we we also receive eternal life, and God would have to change us from being alive to being dead, removing eternal life from us to eternal death. So in thinking through all of the things that transpire at salvation and what's involved in reversing them <coughs> indicates that we... That to believe in a loss of salvation means that we have a very shallow, superficial um, view of what happens when we're saved. See, we don't understand the problem. If we have a small view of the problem, a small view of sin, then salvation is just simply saying, okay, now you get to go to heaven. But when we understand the magnitude of sin, and we understand the complexities and the totality of its corruption, Then we understand the totality and how great our salvation is, how extensive it must be, and what God has wrought in us to save us. We then understand that there's it it can't be based on anything we do, and therefore we can't lose it. Now, our next point, which would be the, I think I said just by uh, way of review, that the Uh, tenth point was the work of the Savior. The eleventh point should have been the argument from the character of God. The twelfth point, I want to make sure you got the numbers right. I renumbered things on the slide, but didn't renumber them in my notes since I'm filming this right after the last class. Um, so the twelfth point would be to think you can help God out in salvation is arrogance and reverses the plan of salvation. The thirteenth point would be when you understand the dynamics and complexities of what God must do to save even one unbeliever, you realize how complex salvation is and how complex it would be to lose salvation. And then fourteen is the character of God. The character of God means that he keeps his promises. He keeps his word. When he says that we are saved, he doesn't reverse himself. When he makes a promise and he gives us something, he doesn't take it back. Uh, because God is immutable, eternal, infinite, and perfectly righteous, he cannot cancel the gift once it is given, no matter how bad our behavior, no matter how uh, obnoxious we become, he cannot cancel the gift. He's not going to kick us out of the family. He might disinherit us, but he will not take away our eternal salvation. We may lose reward, but we will not lose our eternity in heaven with him. And then we come to number 15, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a number of things at salvation as well that determine our eternal security. In 2 Corinthians verse 1, verse 22, we're told that, that God has sealed us and given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The idea of a seal is, is somewhat similar to the uh, old practice in the West and in Texas of, of branding uh, cattle. It is the idea of putting a seal on a document that indicates its, its ownership or to put a brand on, uh, for example, a, uh, a bull or a steer or a cow to indicate ownership. Now, in the Old West, they had a practice uh, where they would, uh, where rustlers would come along and they would take a, uh, sometimes they would take a cinch ring uh, off of a saddle and they would use that cinch ring and they would heat it and they would use that to change the brand on the animal. Or sometimes if they were um were rustling a lot of cattle they would just have a, another brand made that would be superimposed on the original brand so that they it would look to the eye of the observer as if the the brand was something different than the the other the, the original the previous brand the only way to determine who the original owner was and what the original brand was would be to kill the animal and to skin the animal and then to reverse the hide. And then when the hide is reversed, you see who the original owner is. That's going to be true of many Christians. They have a brand. They've been sealed by the Spirit, branded by God under his ownership. But then they decide to go live like they're the child of the devil living in the devil's world and it looks to those who are observing on the outside that they have been, uh, they are really the devil's child. Uh, they have a superimposed brand, but when they die, they'll be in heaven. And at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, the original brand will be identified, but they won't have, they will lose rewards, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says. So God the Holy Spirit we, is our brand, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and He is given to us, He indwells us as a guarantee that we will be saved. This is also stated in Ephesians chapter one, verse thirteen, and Ephesians chapter four, verse thirty. In Ephesians one thirteen we read, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the holy spirit of promise the promise is the promise of eternal life so we're sealed with that as a guarantee that we will receive eternal life and when we die physically we will be in heaven in ephesians 4:30 we have the command do not grieve the holy spirit of god that's done through sin by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption see that tells us that the sealing is to preserve us to that day in the future the time of the of the rapture when we are all united with Christ forever in heaven all who are believers another passage that is important to look at is 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 19 Second uh, 2 Timothy 2:19, 2, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows who are His and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So the Lord knows who are His, even though we don't you can't tell by looking at somebody, by evaluating their life whether or not they are actually actually saved. So the sealing of the Holy Spirit at salvation is a challenge to the believer to avoid a life of carnality, a life of disobedience, and a life of sin, and to focus on the future plan of God uh, for us, the fact that we will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ and that at that evaluation we will receive rewards or suffer loss but not suffer the loss of salvation. The sixteenth point is, the, and the final point, or this actually would be the seventeenth point, is, or actually it's the sixteenth. These are numbered correctly. The fifteenth was the work of the Holy Spirit. The sixteenth is our position in Christ protects us. Romans eight twenty nine and thirty, that we are in Christ, and because we are in Him. Uh, We cannot lose our salvation whatsoever. So Jude begins by reminding his readers that they are kept by Jesus Christ. And then in the second verse, he gives his salutation, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And in that passage, the emphasis is, is different from what we have in other salutations. Uh, usually we have different words. Uh, let me just show you some examples, Romans 1, 7 and 1 Corinthians 1, 2. And for Romans 1, 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. See, there's some similarity there with what we have in uh, uh, Jude called sanctified and kept here we have grace and peace grace and peace not mercy and love love is not used in any other in any other salutation we have grace and peace in Romans 1 7 and First Corinthians 1 2 uh, to the church of God which is at Corinth to those who are sanctified in Christ called saints with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. See, no mention of mercy, grace, or peace. 1 Thessalonians 1 1. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace is common to Paul. 2 Thessalonians 1 1. Um, Let's just go to First Peter one two. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Second Peter, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and uh, Lord Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, I got ahead of myself. Second Peter one two and First uh, Peter one 2, two. Peter one two. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. But here we have mercy, peace, and love. Mercy is a new idea. He doesn't say grace. Mercy and grace are related and love. The word for mercy is the word elias, which means mercy or compassion. Sometimes it's, quoted, it's translated as pity. Pity, I don't think, is a good translation for the concept of mercy. Mercy is the application of grace. Grace is undeserved merit, and mercy is the application of that to a person or group of people in a specific situation. So this tells us that there is a problem. This is a foreshadowing. There's a problem in this congregation, and they need the grace of God in a specific way. And so rather than saying grace, Jude says mercy. May God be merciful to you in the midst of this testing where these false teachers have infiltrated your congregation. He says peace. Peace is uh, a common, common salutation in the ancient world, but we know we, we ha- it has a further meaning for Christians. We have peace with God because we are justified. But peace is also the absence of conflict. There's absence of conflict with God. Phase one means that in phase two we can have peace, peace of mind and peace with other believers. And in the context of this epistle, the problem is a conflict with these false teachers. So Jude is saying, peace be multiplied to you. And then third, love. Why love? Because it is difficult to love those with whom you are engaged in battle. And there is a battle that is going on, and today we live in in, in a world in the evangelical community where there's a tremendous spiritual battle raging to uh, destroy, to dilute, to um, pervert the gospel of grace and the teaching of the word of God. And so Jude says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied, be increased to you in this congregation in the midst of all that uh, that congregation is, uh, is facing. Another thing I want to point out here is that uh, we see an example in just these two opening verses of uh, Jude has this uh, uh, propensity to use triplets, or some writers call them triads, triplets, called, sanctified, preserved in Jesus Christ in verse 1. In verse 2, we have another triplet, mercy, peace, and love. And there'll be uh, many more triplets that show up as we go through um, in the rest, of this, uh, uh, the rest of this epistle. Okay, there's much to cover in verse 3. We don't have time to even begin to get into that uh, now, so I will wait and cover that in the next lesson. So the next time we come back, we will begin in verse 3. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it is you who gives us, supplies us the strength to deal with the spiritual conflict that rages around us. And that even as we uh, experience uh, the intrusion of those who have false doctrine and false ideas and seek to distract and divert us, we pray that we might be able to to stand firm as, in the truth as uh, Jude encourages his readers. Father, we're thankful that we are secure in Christ and that no matter how we may sin or stumble or fall, that doesn't affect our eternal security. And it always gives us confidence that we can recover, we can confess our sins, we can stand up and we can move forward again in the Christian life without fear of ever permanently or even temporarily losing your love. We may only break fellowship. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us with your word and that we might not lose heart or become discouraged in our struggle to go forward and to mature in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.